see some new people, good to see the, uh, I say the old people, but um, terrible heat today, so I'm, I'm sorry it's so, so hot. Um, so a few, uh, a few little announcements for well, next, um, next Sunday, God willing, we're going to baptise Becky. And then next Monday, God willing, we're going to baptise Michelle. So, And uh, we all prayed um, last time about my, my trip to Paris, and I said I was going to Paris, and about if I was a Jewish guy. I went special on the train with this guy, and uh, you know what Paul says, not many mighty in this world are chosen, not many great people, it's generally ordinary folks. But he says not many, but every now and again somebody is called who is somebody. And, uh, it's a wonderful thing when an Orthodox Jewish guy goes to synagogue and accepts Jesus as his Messiah and is saying, it's very, very unusual. Well, I have, uh, I did just make a one, oops, a one minute video of it. Um, I don't know how well it's going to uh, show, but, uh, okay, it's, it's, okay, let's get that um, anyway, this guy confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, believes in him, and yeah, he went to a spa and he baptized him in the water. It was really lovely. So, coming out of prayer requests, I'm going to Israel on Wednesday night, uh, God willing, and I'm going to baptize some people in the Jordan on the Saturday. I'm going to get the Saturday night flight back to Gatwick. So that I can be here with you good people on, uh, on Sunday. Right, well, I'm going to talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you, um, you probably think you, uh, you know and uh, understand. And you know the story that the, a man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, he gets beaten up, he's left half dead. The priest and the Levite come by, can't help him, but the Good Samaritan comes and helps him and takes him to the hotel. And then the Lord says, go and do likewise. And reading it, it just seems, oh, I'll just be a top bloke, just be a nice person for someone in need. And of course, I'm not saying don't be a top bloke, I'm not saying don't be kind to someone in need. But we'll go through it in some detail, and you'll see that, well, that's true, but that's not actually the lesson. Now, who can read this? Well, I know you can all read, but I mean, who would like to read this? Sorry, can I? Okay, Karen, take it away. What, from the beginning? From the beginning. And a certain lawyer lawyer stood up and to test him, asked the teacher, what shall I do inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered saying, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, your neighbour, as yourselves. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, this do and you shall live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Right, and who is my neighbour? Right. Let's go on. Carry on? Yeah, someone else might have a go. I'll carry on if you want. 
Jesus answered and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem. Jesus answered and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and they encountered robbers who both tricked him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And in like manner, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. And then the last bit, it was like two grand harmony And came to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, them, uh, pouring on them oil and wine. And he put uh, him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out uh, two denarii and gave them to the host and said, take care of him. And if you spend more, I, when I come back again, will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved a neighbour to him that encountered the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Right, thanks everybody. So, simple level just means be a nice bloke to someone in need. And of course I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't. But there's more to it. Let's go through that. First of all, who are these uh, Samaritans? Well, the people of Israel were taken into captivity in Assyria a few hundred years before this. And the Assyrians brought in local, we would call them Arab people, to live in Israel. So these people became called the Samaritans and the Jews despised them. You're not the real deal. You're not the, the true you're not the true Jews. You're some sort of half caste, you, you're not the real deal. And the Bible says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, they didn't like them. They treated them as second class citizens. Right, that you live here in Israel and you've been here for a long time, okay, but you you're not us. You're not the real deal. Basic racism. Okay. In Luke chapter 9, that's the chapter before this one, Jesus has gone to a village of Samaritans and they turn the clear off. They don't like him. There's these tensions here. And now Jesus tells this parable to a man who comes to him and says, uh, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? If you know the Bible and you've read the New Testament, you've read the letters of Paul, he keeps on and on, you can't do anything to get eternal life. It is by grace. Right? It's not by works, as many man should boast. It is by grace, that means a gift. So the guy is wrong from the start. What good deed can I do? If I'm a top bloke and I help an old lady who's fallen over in the street, and I, I help someone who's uh, struggling with their shopping, so therefore do I get eternal life? Well, the answer is, yeah, you should, of course, help the old lady, but his whole attitude is wrong. What should I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what's written in the law? The guy answers correctly, love your God with all your heart, soul and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But then the guy is getting to his real point. And who is my neighbor? Because the Jews thought that my neighbour is one of my own people. 
that my neighbour is my neighbour amongst the Jewish people. And you know how when somebody asks you a question, and religious people often do this, they ask you a question, but they actually they've got their own agenda. And this guy is saying, oh, you know, uh, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, yeah, I'm going to love my neighbour as myself. And who's my neighbour? He's trying to trap Jesus. And the whole point that we're going to see is that you're asking the wrong question. Because he's going to go on to explain that basically, my friend, you are the injured man. I'm the good Samaritan, Jesus is saying. You are the injured man. And you, therefore, have got to just accept my grace. <coughs> He's going to turn the whole thing around. Now, whenever Jesus is asked questions, as he often is in the Gospel of Records, he's often asked questions, he never directly answers. He always attacks the question. And this is a classic case where the guy says, and who's my neighbour? Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, any, any old Joe. He actually is saying, don't worry about loving your neighbour and all that. You are the desperately injured man who is going to be saved by God's grace. And we'll come to that in a minute. So he tells a story. He says, right, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So the man is going down. He's going away from Jerusalem, that's the city of God, to Jericho, the city of the Gentiles. The guy's going wrong, he's going down. And he's beaten up. Now, the more you read the Bible, the more you see it all connects with each other. And there was a king called Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. This is what happened to him. He sinned badly and God condemned him. And he sent the Babylonians to, to judge him. And the guy escaped from Jerusalem and ran to Jericho, but they caught him on the way and beat him up and put his eyes out and everything. And Jesus is saying, that man is every one of us. That we have gone down. We've gone away from God. We've gone down to the, the city of the world, the city of the Gentiles, to Jericho. Down, down, down. And we were attacked by the robbers. And we, like him, stripped, beaten or whipped is literally the word, lashed. And they left him half dead. He's not completely dead, but he's half dead. That's you and me. Are we dead? No, we're still alive. But you can be spiritually dead. And you know how it's like. You go to any bar, any pub around here, and, and you can meet people who are spiritually dead. They're alive, physically. But spiritually, they are totally dead. And that is how we all were at one point. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. We were half dead. And there came a priest along, and he saw the man, but passed by on the other side. And there came a Levite, that's one of the uh, workers in the temple, and he passed by on the other side. He saw him, and he walked on the other side of the road. And he did that so that he wouldn't become unclean, because blood, anything to do with blood, made people unclean under the law of Moses. So, the Jews to the state, they were funny about blood. You know, it would be kosher meat, no blood in the meat, and that sort of thing. So, 
the priest and the Levite clearly represent sort of standard religion. They see the problem, but they can't help and they walk around. And you know why we were here in church in a pub? Partly because of that. That the priest and the Levite didn't help us. And that's why we're here. And then what happens? There came a Samaritan as he journeyed, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion and came to him and bound up his wounds, etc. Well, who is the Samaritan? The Samaritan is not you and me. The Samaritan is Jesus. The Jews said about Jesus, he's a Samaritan, and he's crazy. It says that in John's Gospel. That the Jews thought Jesus was a Samaritan. You understand why? They knew his mother, but there was always a big question mark over who was the father of Jesus. Because who was his father? God. Mary was the only woman who became pregnant on this earth without, without a man. And so there was always this question mark for them, who's his father? And of course they in their worldly, secular way thought, well, Mariam, Mary as we would call her, uh, Mary had a fling with somebody when she was a teenager, and yes, we know the father of all his, his siblings, but Jesus, yeah, well, yeah, he's a Samaritan, he's a half-caste. That's what they thought of Jesus. That's why they said, who is your father? They say this to him a number of times. So, they say he's a Samaritan, and he's saying, yeah, okay, so I'm a Samaritan. You think I'm non-standard. You think that I'm dodgy. I'm not the true deal. Okay? So you think. And it says the Samaritan, when you saw him, was moved with compassion. How many times as you read the Gospel records do you read that very same term about Jesus? That when he saw, for example, the crowds of people who were hungry, he was moved with compassion and fed them. When he saw a sick child, when he saw somebody dead, so many times the gospel records say, and he was moved with compassion, and he did something for them. So, the Samaritan is moved with compassion. This is Jesus, the one who was moved with compassion. He saw a man, was moved with compassion, and came to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. And he put him on his own animal and brought him to the inn. He came to him. Now, this is the thing, that we are the, the beat up man. We are the one who was half dead. That is us. And Jesus came to us. Unfortunately, of course, there's people to whom he comes who say, get lost, I don't know that. But he has taken the initiative. All through this story, the injured man is passive because he can't do anything. Some of you might remember a few weeks ago, I was talking about the parable of the lost coin and mm, the parable of the lost sheep. And in both those parables, the lost coin is you and me, the lost sheep is you and me. But a sheep and a coin are sort of unable to do anything to help themselves. 
A coin doesn't grow legs and go walking to the person looking for it. The lost sheep, I said that when a sheep gets really lost, at night they, are, they, they freeze. They, they are frozen. They're paralyzed in fear. It was all the initiative of a shepherd to find it. And it's the same here in this parable that the injured man is with me, and the injured person has got no... He's totally passive. He doesn't say, help me please. He's half dead. Jesus, as it were, the good Samaritan, comes to him. Now, Jesus comes to us, knocking on our door, as it were, of our hearts, in various ways. He wants to save. This is what Jesus means in Hebrew, Yahushua. Jesus is like a Greek Latin form. Yahushua, Yahweh saves. That's the idea, that's the simplest idea. So, he pours in oil and wine. And what we're going to do just now, after I finish the sermon, is to take the cup and take the bread, which represents his blood. He poured in oil and wine. So, what is the oil? I suggest that the oil is the spirit, the wine is his blood. He pours that onto the wounded man. Now, we have a choice. We, don't, we can resist the spirit. We can say, no, I don't want that. Okay, we can't But that's what he has done to us who have said yes to him. And yet, how can we be a part of this? Well, we want to identify with, with him. Yes, you're going to pour in oil and wine, Jesus, here I am. And that is why we take the the wine, well it's actually grape juice but all the same we take the symbol of his blood because yeah I want this I want this, I'm not against it, I want it right? and he sets him on his own animal and leads the animal to the inn so the picture is of a man getting off his donkey and then leading his donkey with a body over it to the inn or hotel, let's say. That is always the image of a servant leading uh, his master. Right? You, you get that a number of times in the Old Testament that the servant walked and uh, led the donkey or the horse whilst the master sat on the, on the horse or on the donkey. Haman, if you know the book of Esther, that he said, oh, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And the answer is, well, the man who the Lord, the king is going to honor should sit on a horse and the servant should lead him, should lead the horse. So, this Samaritan acts as a servant, acts as a servant. He puts the injured man on his donkey, whatever, and leads the Leads this is all the picture of Jesus as the servant. All the pictures absolutely fits perfectly. But you see how Jesus is turning the whole question around. There's a question started with, and who is my neighbor? 
Should I do good to uh, Gentiles? Should I do good to Samaritans? And Jesus is turning the whole thing around. Very clever, as he always does. He's saying, look, mate, you are the desperately injured man. Saved by grace. I am the Savior, not you. So the whole question, who's my neighbor? He's turning it around. But as I say, he always does this. Whenever you read the Gospels, he's asked loads of questions. Always has this way of turning it around. Now, we are here as Christians, and what is it to be a Christian? It is to know Jesus. And how do you know Jesus? Well, read the Gospels. Get the app. I've got the app cards back there. Take one of those Bibles if you don't have one. Read the Gospels. It is on the pages of the Gospels that you will encounter Jesus. This is what it is to be a Christian, to be thinking about him, to be, if you like, in a personality cult behind this man, Jesus. Not any human being, but behind him. This is what it means, in, in actual terms, to be a Christ person or a Christian, however you usually put it. To be focused upon him, to think about him. You see, Jesus is real. Where two or three gather together, there am I in the midst of them. He is there in heaven. This same Jesus, the angel said, who you saw go into heaven shall so come in like man, that he is actually there. That when, you know, Becky and Michelle get baptized into Jesus, they go under the water, that's like his death, come out of the water, that's like his resurrection. You see, he really did die and rise again, and 40 days later, he really did ascend. He is real. So, he comes to the inn, to the uh, hotel, if you like. Like it away, Karen. He comes, thanks. He comes to the inn, to the uh, hotel, and he gives the innkeeper two pennies. And he says, Look after him until I come again. Verse 35 When I return, I will repay you. Now that clearly sounds like the return of Jesus, right? Jesus is the good Samaritan and he says to the innkeeper in this story here's two pennies, when I return second coming I will repay you and this is how the Bible finishes in the book of Revelation with the Lord Jesus saying that uh, I'm, I come quickly and my reward, my repayment is with me to give every man as his work shall be ok, so then he says Here's two pennies. And I will come back. And if perhaps I might just stay a bit longer, I will, I will see you right. I'll pay. Let's put a few things together. In the parables of Jesus, he says that people worked for one penny a day. In those days, he worked for one penny or denarius, one penny a day. The parable of the workers in the vineyard, they all work for one penny a day. That was the deal. So he gives the guy two pennies for two days, right? 
And he said, there might, I might just, and it might be that I'll stay longer, and I'll see you right if, uh, if I'm longer. So, you can conclude, I think, that the Lord Jesus, sorry, that the Samaritan was saying, I'm going to come back after about two, after about two days. Now we bring in another scripture, 2 Peter 3. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years. The good Samaritan is Jesus. He takes us, us lot, to the hotel, to the inn, to the pub, you might say, the public house. And gives two pennies and says, I'm coming back in about two days. One day is a thousand years. You're up to well, two thousand years. And so we are living now two thousand years after the time of Jesus. Now, I'm not one of these people who puts a great thing on dates and all that kind of thing. Oh, Jesus is coming on such and such date. Uh, no one knows the day nor the hour. We've got to live. We've got to live as if Jesus is coming any day. But I think you can figure from that little parable that he's saying, look, after about two, two days, 2,000 years, I'll be coming again. And frankly, when you look at the world as it is, I mean, this, this old world cannot cough and have its way on much longer. And, and God will not allow the world to be destroyed. He has a purpose. <laughs> to establish his son here on this earth. And Jesus will come. The point is, uh, we don't know when he's going to come, but that's okay. But I think you can figure from various things that he is going to come soon. And if we're in the last generation, that's going to be very difficult. Spiritually, it will be difficult. There's quite a lot of evidence in the Bible that the last generation will have it very tough spiritually. And you may say, you know, they'll be persecuted. You may say, well, we in this country, in the UK, we are not persecuted directly. So how does that figure? If we're really in the last days, are we persecuted? Maybe we're not in the last days. But you can look at it another way, and you can say, yes, we are spiritually. That the pressure that is there coming in on each of us is absolutely huge in a way that it was not in previous generations. We've all got these, these phones and the rubbish that is coming out all the time, visual images, adverts, do this, do that, it's just huge. And the pressure is on us all the time. So that is. And I'll share I'll share another idea with you about the uh, coming of Jesus in broad terms. We're told that when Jesus comes, there will be a millennium. That is a 1,000 year reign. And Paul, in his letters, talks about how that is what he calls the Sabbath of rest. The Sabbath of rest. So, according to the Bible, Adam was around 4,000 years before Jesus. That is 6,000 years ago. We're 2,000 years after Jesus. So again, if a day is like 1,000 years, you've got 
six days, that's 6,000 years, and then the Sabbath, the seventh day of rest in the millennium. Which means that Jesus then is going to set up his millennial reign about six days, 6,000 years after the time of Adam. For me, to be honest, I'm not that sold on the whole thing, but some people ask, so I suggest it to you. Because for me, I love the Lord, and all I want to do is to be with Him. And when He comes, I believe I will be ready to be with Him. And I'm trying to live my life as if, you know, every day is the last, I mean, it's difficult to, of course it is. Um, but that we're expecting Jesus any time, that I am waiting for my Lord to come. That's the idea. So trying to set dates and say, oh wow, we're actually in the last generation. I don't like to, because I might be wrong. <coughs> I might be wrong. But if things like this, the, the two pennies in the parable, the two days, I do rather see the hint that we are there. And as I say, that's good news and bad news. Oh wow. You know, like if Jesus comes in our generation, say he comes now, you know what? We're going to be the only generation that will never experience death. Everybody else who was a believer before us, they all died. Okay, they're going to be resurrected when Jesus comes. But you and me, if he comes now, we won't die. We're going to be the only generation that don't die. But that means it's, not going, to be, it's going to be tough for us in this age. And it is tough. I mean, we are surrounded as never before by temptation, by visual images bombarding us all the time the sin of this, that, the other. Anyway, that is, as it is, just my uh, suggestion. Now, the idea is then that where are we now? We were lying by the road, half dead, but Jesus took us, and we are now in the inn. <laughs> and we are literally in the path. We are in the inn. Let's call it the inn, not the pub. But we're in the inn. Getting better. And coming to realise what, what happened to me. And you say to the innkeeper, what happened? I just remember being beaten up by my, those guys. Yeah, how did I get here? Well, a Samaritan came and picked you up. Uh, who's paying for it? I'm not doing that, don't worry. The Samaritan. Wow. And so, here we are, in the inn, quite literally, coming to understand, wow, what amazing grace. Now, it all began with this lawyer, thinking he's so, so smart, saying, and who is my neighbour? Sure, I will be a good person, but should I be nice and kind to Gentiles, to Samaritans, or is this only to the Jews? And Jesus is saying, look, forget all your categories. Forget all your legalism. You are the desperately wounded man upon whom I have had grace. Now, we've got to imagine how it was for these Jews hearing this, that the hero of the story is a Samaritan. Oh, oh I don't like Samaritans. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They despise them. But like it or not, he is your saviour. And it's a bit like that with us and God and Jesus. People tell me that they don't believe in God because they don't like 
oh, suffering. They don't like how children suffer. They don't like how there's famines and earthquakes. And, oh, why does God do this? And my answer to them is, okay, fine, I don't have answers particularly to all that. I don't have one 30-second answer. But your struggle with God, and your, if you like, disagreement or dislike of God, does not mean God doesn't exist. If you say that, why does God allow suffering? All right, that's a fair question. But that doesn't mean God doesn't exist. What it means is, you don't like how he acts. It's not, I, I don't say I don't like how he acts, I just say I don't understand all of it. And that is built into our human experience, that we are never going to completely understand God. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Well, it's a bit like children asking, why is the grass green? Why have cows got four legs? Well, you can give a, a four-year-old a great explanation, but you're wasting your breath because they're not going to get it. And it's the same with us, with our questions about all this. We don't get it all. My point is, okay, so you don't like the Samaritan. Well, tough. He saved you. And this is how it is with, with us. As I say, in one sense, the, the man is passive. And of course, what Jesus is talking about is grace. Now, what does grace mean? Well, grace literally means gift. Gift. And it's from this Greek word charis, and makes the word charismatic. Um, the idea of grace is that I give you something purely for nothing, with no uh, expectation. And it's something that we have never actually experienced in our human experience. Parents love their children. They say, oh, well, that was grace. And what point? Because parents expect something back. It appears that Tesco or somebody is very gracious in giving all their out-of-date food or nearly out-of-date food to the food bank. So you go to the food bank to get your food. Oh, and there's a big sign, T-E-S-C-O, Tesco. And you take your food. Oh, but they get an advertising out of it. You think, oh, good old Tesco's. Well, I do have some money, I'll go down to Tesco's. Not to Aldi, not to Sainsbury's. This country, the UK, gives money to Ukraine, the same country in Africa. But strangely enough, that country in Africa has got gold, diamonds, oil, the rest of it. And strangely enough, Ukraine has got strategic value for their particular issue against Russia or whatever. There is no grace in this world. What looks like generosity has always got a sort of price tag attached. You may say that our love is pure. Well, <coughs> two people go into a relationship and there's all this love. But like it or not, because people are human, there is still this issue of what is in it for me? What will I get out of this? There is all that. That is always there. And I'm afraid that is what it is to be human. You know? We, he or she will give me kids, or whatever it might be, sex, or money, or stability, or I won't be lonely anymore, or we'll have a better income together. You know, there is the love, but there's also what will I get out of it. I'm being realistic. When you encounter God's grace, you encounter something purer than what we have ever experienced from parents friends, 
heart was whatever it might have been. Children. You meet something totally, totally different. Whereby God is saying, look, I do this just simply so. And this is the point of the Good Samaritan. That he sees this guy who is half dead and has compassion. The man is passive. And this wonderful story is to answer this lawyer and say, and who should I do good to? You are a desperately injured man. You are saved by grace. In that sense, you are passive. The injured man, all through this story, is passive. He can't do anything. So you see how it is that we are saved by this grace. And religion uh, tends to struggle with that and always wants to make it salvation by works. You've got to pay money. You've got to do something. You have got to perform some ritual. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. And then you'll be right. And we actually prefer that. We actually like that. It's why churches like the Catholic Church, Russian Orthodox Church, are the biggest churches in the world. Because you've got to physically do something. Do this ritual, or do that ritual. I'm good, I'm good. But you see, only biblical Christianity explains pure grace. That this is not because you are good, it is not because you are worthy, it is simply in a, what we call a sovereign sense. That is, God simply decided. And you wonder, why was I chosen? Why, you know, was I not born halfway up a hillside in China 3,000 years ago, never having heard the name of Jesus, and I lived my life and I died and that was it? Not because I'm better, you're better than the Chinese guy 3,000 years ago who never heard the name of Jesus Christ. But simply because God in this sovereign way said, okay, I'm Okay, sure. Okay. Yeah. You know? I want you. And th- this is grace. Not because we were more attractive to him than the other guy, but simply so. And you struggle with it because it's foreign to all our experience. All our experience of love and grace has been conditioned. All loving so-called grace. We've shown the people, our children, our families, all had something conditional to it. What is in it for me? It was always that. Whereas this grace of God is pure. Absolutely pure. Love for the sake of love. I mean, we're playing about the grace through the, uh, through, through the big screen. And that's about it. Amazing grace. It is amazing. And... <clears throat> When you come to you know to, to think about the cross of Jesus, which we're going to remember now, I mean, yeah, this is what it's about—a grace that is amazing. And the Samaritan poured in oil and wine. The wine obviously representing the Lord's blood; the oil representing His spirit, mainly. 
We want to identify with Him. When you take that bread, when you take that cup, in a very small way you're saying, yes, I want this. I want this. I want to identify with Him. I want this. I want Him. And you go further, be baptized into Jesus. Not into any church, not into any denomination, any theology. Into Him. So that, yes, I have said yes to Him. And in one sense, all you've got to do is say yes. In one sense, that is all you can do, is to say yes to it. But of course the Lord finishes by saying, right, go and do likewise. Which is such a challenge to show that saving grace to people. Now the greatest thing you can do to people is to save them. It is not a question, I don't think, of doing good works. Oh, well, yeah, I gave a bit of money to this one, or helped this one, or whatever. Well, I don't do that. But the greatest thing you can do for anybody is to help them spiritually. Is to, as Jesus did, to have compassion to come to them, to identify them, to sit and have a coffee or a coke or something and listen to them, to identify them, and to take them to the end. That's the greatest thing you can do for somebody. So, I want to read what uh, Paul says about the uh, breaking of bread, and then we'll take the uh, bread and the cups. And he says, I received of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he did the thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in memory of me. In the same manner also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you eat this bread and you proclaim the Lord's death until you come. So, If someone who you love and respect asks you to do a very simple thing, you do it with joy. Yes, I can do that. And so he's asked us to do this. He's asked us to take bread and to take this cup in memory of him. And let's do it. It's as simple as that. To remember him. Now, you know, 2,000 years ago, whatever it was, on a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, on a hill just outside Jerusalem, this actually happened. That he gave his life for me. I know it's a bit of a mystery that he did it for me, and for you, and for you, and for all of us. I know it's a bit of a mystery. But it is all the same true, that he did this for me. And I personally shall respond to it. So, let's give thanks for the bread, and then maybe here you can distribute the bread. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread, in which we see the symbol of the body of the Lord Jesus that was given for us. And we pray that we might find our part in him, and that we might be his, and not this world's. And that, as it were, here at the inn, coming round, realizing the greatness of his words, that we might get it 
and be eternally grateful <clears throat> and remain eternally with Him. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Right, so this cup represents the blood of the Lord Jesus, the covenant, the new covenant that was made with us. The simple fact that he loved me more than I can ever know. Because, as you know, greater love has no man A man lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends, he said, if you do what I command you. So, this is the symbol of the purest grace, the purest love. Let's try, that's all we can do, is try to thank God for it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the symbol of the blood and the life of our Lord Jesus. And help us, Father, to, to see it more clearly that you have lavished your love upon us, and you want us, and you want to save us, despite how we are and our position. But you love us. Thank you, Father, for this. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.